0: And I trust that that picture of judgment and hell that we looked at last night makes us bow even more amazed at his mercy because that's what he saved us from. In his book, uh, Things Unseen, Mark Buchanan talks about a yearning that all, all of us have. He writes this. He says, he, God, made us to yearn to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill, and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. Yearning itself is healthy, a kind of compass inside us pointing to true north. And that true north is what I wanna talk about this morning, the last of our eight pieces of that jigsaw puzzle that we've been building. We began with creation in the image of God, We looked at the marring of that image as human beings asserted their independence of God and were marked by the five faces of death. We saw God's relentless pursuit of his desire for intimacy with the people as he formed Israel and blessed her to be a blessing and how she completely abandoned that calling. And yet throughout it, God continued to work on those four new things, culminating in that messenger of the covenant, that glorious suffering servant who is the anointed conqueror, Jesus himself. And then from there, we looked at at the bride of Christ, that he's forming his people to be radiant and holy, to give herself to him in this wonderful marriage feast that will be the end and culmination and the consummation of the ages. We looked at the mission that he's given the church to include men and women from every nation in that church by the power of the Spirit. And then last night, we looked at the next defining moment in history when this same Jesus will come back again. He will come as judge and we looked at the awesome reality of of hell and what that is like. What abandonment by God to our own selfishness really looks like for all eternity. And then comes heaven. That's what we want to talk about this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. It is this imperishable inheritance that I want to unpack this morning so that it has some specific contours and shape to it. We can't get excited with generalities. It is the specifics that hook us because life is made of specifics. Life is not made of generalities. We live in specific addresses with specific names, married to specific people, working in specific jobs, dealing with specific weather conditions, specific economies at every time. The nuts and bolts of life. And vain, ethereal pictures of heaven are not sufficient. We need some concrete handles, specific contours that are based and rooted in scripture. And that's my goal this morning. Because it's a living hope that he wants to give to us. Not not a dead hope, not just the word hope, but a hope that's actually living inside of us. Now, there's a curious ambivalence though about heaven. Uh, Large majority of North Americans believe in heaven and believe they're going there. But a significant number of them shows lack of enthusiasm in wanting to go there. Randy Alcorn in his book uh, Heaven talks about a pastor, a pastor who said this. To be truthful, Randy, I would rather have annihilation waiting for me at the end of death. I am dreading the prospect of heaven. And another woman, a Christian, said to him, I fear heaven and eternal life. Why is it? Why is that? There are at least three reasons, I think. First of all, we have this idea that heaven's going to be boring, an endless worship service, an all-night sing that never ends. And our young people are terrified, especially as they say, with all these people. Forever and ever in the same place <laughs> with no end in sight. So, and some of us don't say it that way, but we kind of wonder. We are glad when a worship service is over sometimes, right? So that, there's, there's, there's this idea that heaven can be boring. And then, of course, there are a company all these childish images, cotton candy clouds, fat little cherubic angels playing their harps like that yogurt commercial that you might have seen, you know? Uh, so very, very childish images like that. And then thirdly, of course, most important, uh, we are a bunch of disembodied souls. Two-thirds of people who believe they're going to heaven don't believe that we will have bodies in heaven. That these bodies are just just as their bodies are temporary housings for that which really matters, which is our soul. And heaven will be a liberation of, of, of our souls from our bodies. But who really desires a soulless, bodiless existence? So when you put those things together, you begin to see why. <laughs> if, if heaven is a boring, endless church service and the accompanying images are incredibly childish, and we are concerned to an eternity of a community with bodiless souls, who wants that? We'd rather have the concreteness of earth. And have you imagined for one moment how these pictures of heaven come across to non-Christians who maybe thoroughly enjoy the physicality of life itself, in life, in work, in play, and bountiful feasts and whatnot, But is that the biblical picture of heaven? That's what I want. I want to take a look at the biblical picture of heaven. It shows us that none of these things are true. Where we got them I don't know. But they are not biblical. And the starting point for our understanding of the nature of heaven. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it says. Firstly, he has begotten us again to a living hope. Through the resurrection. The hope that we have is directly related. To the physical resurrection of Jesus. In Philippians chapter three, verse 20 to 21, we read, and Paul says, we eagerly await a savior from there, the return of Christ that we looked at last night, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious. It doesn't say that he will come and liberate our souls from our bodies. That's a Greek platonic concept. He said, no, he said by his power that is able to bring everything under control, he will transform our lowly bodies so they will become like Jesus' heavenly body himself. This was one of the reasons why Jesus stayed on 40 days after his resurrection. Certainly it was as Luke says, to show to his people by many infallible proofs that he truly rose from the dead. But also to show us what a resurrected physical life is going to look like on a physical earth, which we will come to in a moment. If you look up all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you'll find that he wasn't hovering over earth like a hovercraft. He walked. He stood. When he ate bread and fish, he didn't go down a transparent esophagus. He didn't have a halo around him. He didn't speak in a God voice. <laughs> he spoke to his disciples normally. He called them by name. His interactions with people were normal interactions. He said, touch my hands, touch my feet. It is me. So there was that concreteness. So if our bodies are going to be like Jesus, resurrected bodies, they would, they would be in many ways like this body. There's a continuity in our resurrected bodies to our earthly bodies. But there's much more than that. But it's not less than that. That's the point. It's it's like this and then there's much more because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, talking about our resurrection, that we are sown perishable bodies, raised an imperishable body. We are sown in dishonor. We are raised in glory. We are sown in weakness, raised in power. We are sown physical and raised spiritual. And the word spiritual in 1 Corinthians does not mean non-physical. You know, when we talk about a wooden boat or a sailboat, there are two different ways to describe it. When you say this is a wooden boat, we talk about being made of wood. When we say it's a sailboat, it's not made of sails. (laughs) It's what propels it. One talks about the content, the other talks about the motive power. When the word spiritual used in the Greek language to describe our spiritual bodies, it doesn't mean that we are made of just spirit. It means what propels us is the Holy Spirit inside of us. We are now, we have a whole new dynamic within us as we retain our spiritual bodies. So there is continuity with these present bodies, but there's so much more as well. So what might that look like? And here we need to exercise our sanctified imaginations. This much we know from scripture. That there will be continuity with our present bodies. They will be like his glorious body. So there will be additional capacities that we are not even oh, can't even imagine, can't even experience, but let me stretch your imagination a little bit. So now I'm moving from solid basis in scripture to imagination, so don't, don't hold me. I'm not saying this is gospel truth, but this is, we do need to exercise our imaginations. By the way, it's one of the most important faculties. The evangelical community has surrendered to the devil. When uh, Don Perstersky did a study of Canadian, defining study of Canadian teenagers many years ago, he found that the two lowest values that that, that teenagers valued were creativity and imagination. And you know which community rated them the lowest? The evangelical community. Creativity and imagination were rated the lowest in values by evangelicals. We need to recapture our imaginations. Because imagination has the power to get to the will. Bypassing the intellect completely and mobilizing us. So here are a few things. First of all, I think there'll be beautiful bodies. <laughs> if our bodies are going to be like this, there'll be beautiful bodies. But not, not like Hollywood's definition of beauty. But beauty that is without insecurity or arrogance attached to it. Like in, in Hollywood, there are beautiful women, impossibly beautiful women and impossibly handsome men. But they're so insecure, so many of them, that's why they go from one relationship to another, to somehow prove to themselves that they really are worth something. And the ones that actually are content with the way they look, there's sheer arrogance in the way they treat other people and the way they parade themselves. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be beautiful without ever trying to be beautiful? (laughs) Because you know you're beautiful, you believe you're beautiful, and you know everybody else is beautiful too. Can you imagine living in a community like that? Where there is beauty without any insecurity, or beauty without any arrogance, beauty without any covetousness of any kind at all. Because our bodies are going to be like his glorious body. Secondly, I think we'll have heightened physical senses. Our seeing, our hearing, our smelling, our tasting, and our feeling are going to be much more intensified in their capacities and will become increasingly so for all of eternity because it will take an eternity to become more and more like his body. Let me just use taste for an example. Why is there so much eating in the Bible? Talk about bountiful feasts. (laughs) And what's the first thing Jesus did after his resurrection to these poor disciples who couldn't catch fish all night long? He didn't rebuke them for their lack of faith. He said, here's some breakfast. That must have been some bread that he baked. And fish. That's the first thing he did. And there were so many post-resurrection meals that he had together. Even before he was constantly eating with his disciples. I mean, why did, why did God make in Genesis food that was good to taste and good to look at? He could have made freeze-dried stuff that the astronauts eat and Adam and Eve would have survived. If all, all he cared about was vitamins and all those kinds of things, he could have provided that for us. But no, for the sheer pleasure of tasting and enjoying. But as you eat tonight, pause for a few moments and say, this is only a foretaste of something even more Amazing. Apply that to each one of our physical senses and we're going to see our bodies probably have heightened physical senses in them. And then thirdly, we'll be a radiant community of people. Remember, he's fashioning a body. Ephesians 5 says he's making a bride holy and radiant for himself. Jesus didn't have a halo when he was walking around, but remember he did allow the disciples to see him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says his whole being shone, (laughs) and with beautiful humor it says, whiter than clothes that had been bleached. (laughs) That's how Jesus shone. Moses in Exodus, when he came down from the mountain after his conversations with God, after praying the way we learned how he prayed, holding God to his glory. When he came down, the people saw his face was radiant. Moses didn't know it, but the people saw his face was radiant. Stephen the martyr, when he was being stoned and dying, even in the act of death, they said his face shone. He was radiant. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll be, when we all, all, we all with shining faces will reflect the glory of God as we ourselves are being transformed from glory to glory. That's already starting here. Because Moses experienced that right here. One of the joys of continuing to commune with God is that something happens to you. That you will not know about. But everybody else will know about it. That's why the um, Sanhedrin was able to say. About these lowly fishermen. Who were Jesus disciples. They took note that they had ordinary men. Unschooled men. But they had been with Jesus. How do they know that? <laughs> they didn't see them. But in the, when you are in that secret place. In the presence of God. Communing with him. There's a transformation. That is taking place inside of us. Only there we will see it amazingly. A whole community of shining faces. So these are some dimensions, I think, of our resurrected body. So is heaven going to be boring? Absolutely not. <laughs> is it going to be childish? No. Is it going to be physical? Absolutely, certainly. Jesus' resurrected body is the first thing that gives us a clue to this dimension of heaven. All right. What about earth? in the meantime. Again, we need to begin with all of our erroneous conceptions, sometimes in songs that we love. Uh, let me just show you, for example. I mean, I love How Great Thou Art was one of the first hymns I learned after I became a Christian. And I still love it to this day, we sang it earlier on this week. But you remember the last verse, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. There I shall bow with humble adoration. So. Heaven is my home, but it's out there somewhere. And then the children's song, Away in a Manger. What does it say? Bless all the dear children in thy tender care, and fit us for heaven to live with you there. So we have this idea smuggled in in our song, and heaven is somewhere out there. And the earth, remember that old spiritual, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. So these songs which we love, and there's a lot of truth in them, have smuggled in these ideas, just like those childish pictures of heaven have smuggled in these ideas that heaven is out there, my home is out there, earth, forget it. But that's not biblical at all. By the way, imagine an impact again on a Christ follower here, on a non-Christ follower seeker who hears all this and hears a man or a woman who's engaged in their work. They're engaged with all of their heart in a cause to make this world better. And if they hear this kind of stuff, it sounds like terrible escapism to them. By the way, it's also hypocritical because deep down within, we are quite happy to be here. We're quite fairly anchored to earth. (laughs) That's why we don't want to go to heaven. So we need to correct this divorce of heaven and earth in the light of what scriptures say. Because you see, just like that platonic view that sees our bodies as a temporary vehicle for the housing of the soul, which is what really matters, and heaven will be a liberation of the soul from our bodies, we've also seen that, we've also have this idea that earth is something temporary to house us today and one day it'll be gone and we'll all be in heaven. So we need another re-examination of the scriptures. Okay, to, to correct this idea of this divorce of heaven and earth. Because the Bible doesn't speak of the divorce of heaven and earth. It speaks of the marriage of heaven and earth. So what does that mean? What does that mean practically? For example in Isaiah 65, 17 in the Old Testament it says Behold I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. And then in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. In keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's New Testament epistles, or whether it's a consummation of all things in Revelation 21. God says there is coming a new heavens and a new earth is coming as well. If God's intent were just to take us away to this heaven somewhere out there and not worry about earth, why create a new earth, just destroy destroy it? That'll be enough. Why is he bothering to create a new earth? You see, the word new there is exactly the same word that is used for new birth when we become Christ followers. What happens to us when we receive Jesus into our heart and the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again and become new? Old things are passed away, all things have become new. What becomes new? Well, instead of a dead spirit, we have an alive spirit. The Holy Spirit now lives within us. Instead of a darkened, futile, and ignorant mind, we have a mind that is capable of being renewed in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. That's all new. But the old stuff is still the same. You don't wake up in the morning with be looking different. A physicist is still a physicist the day after she becomes a believer. Our talents are still largely the same. A wonderful pianist will remain a wonderful pianist. So there's both old and new. So that's the idea. It's newness out of the old, not the destruction of the old. So that's what happens to us in our conversion. Exactly the same idea of newness when he talks about new earth. It doesn't mean he will just completely get rid of the old one. It is newness out of the old. So there's both continuity and discontinuity, just like our bodies have both continuity with this world and discontinuity as well. Earth, my brothers and sisters, is not doomed to destruction, but to a magnificent invasion by the Holy Spirit (laughs) to become a brand new earth. Different kind of earth. See, God's glory was challenged on earth by Adam and Eve and by the rebellion. Satan tempted them on earth. So it is so fitting that God's glory will finally be consummated on earth. What does this say? The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory. Not the whole heaven. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So that is heaven's destiny. And it is amplified in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3 in two beautiful images. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. So there are two things here that talk to us about this, what happens in this, what is the newness of heaven. The first thing is that it becomes a dwelling place of God. God once again comes to dwell on earth. He doesn't take us away to something called heaven out there. But he takes us, brings us down and becomes a dwelling place of God. When Adam and Eve uh, were created, they were put in the garden. God met them in the cool of the day. Here's the point. The garden wasn't in some place called heaven. The garden was here on earth and he met them on earth. Now there's coming a day when the whole earth will be that garden. And it will be filled with the, be all the dwelling place of God. So that'll be one of the hallmarks of the new earth. that will be invaded once again by the presence of God. And by the way, the incarnation is a beautiful anticipation of that. Because for those 33 years, the future broke in upon the present when God walked this earth. And earth became, mind you, it was only in Palestine. It was only for 33 years. There were huge parts of the world he didn't go to. But there was a little foretaste. When God made this place. That's why John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same word for being at home with us. Which is why Peterson translated God moved into our neighborhood. One day the whole earth is going to be God's neighborhood as he moves in. And then the second one is the metaphor of marriage. This new Jerusalem comes like a bride prepared for her wedding. In Genesis chapter 2 he prepared Eve as a bride for Adam. At the consummation of all things in Revelation 21 he prepares earth. As a bride for heaven. So rather than the divorce of heaven and earth. There is this amazing marriage of heaven and earth. And just like the first marriage. Unleashed a wave of creativity. Both in progeny. As well as the, all the technology. And music and culture that came out of it. Can you imagine a wave of creativity. That is going to be unleashed. From this consummation of this marriage of heaven and earth. As glorious men and women in beautiful, glorious, resurrected bodies that have heightened physical senses that are continually becoming more and more heightened and more and more glorious. Rule uh, an earth that is filled with the knowledge of God. Everyone full, fully, fully living out those five dimensions of the image of God. Finally, Jesus' prayer will be answered when he said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, earth will be a place where the will of God will flourish and nothing else. So just like we use our sanctified, so that much is from scripture, just like we use our sanctified imagination uh, to look at what our resurrected bodies might look like, this, this more over and above, what might, a, what might a new earth look like that is continuous with this earth, but even more spectacular? First of all, I think, and this is where it's going back to imagination, uh, uh, probably a world with more dimensions in it, and some clues to that. You see, we live in a spatially three-dimensional world. Length, breadth, height. We understand that. And after Einstein, we also know that matter and space and time and energy are all connected together. Mathematically, we can formulate multiple dimensions. We can imagine four, five, and six dimensions mathematically. But experientially, we can't. Experientially, we can experience three dimensions. We can experience two dimensions in flatness. And we can experience one dimension in a string. But we cannot experience anything more than three dimensions. But what would happen if we could? The closest illustration or experience I got to that was when we took our children for the first time to Disney World many years ago. Michael Jackson was a famous figure at that time, and one of his big all-time hits was called The Thriller. And there was a special exhibit where you would walk into this, and for 45 minutes, you saw a Michael Jackson performance, but they gave you special three-dimensional glasses. And my goodness, that... It just blew me away. I mean, I didn't like Michael Jackson. I don't like his music. But I just wanted to see this spectacular performance. You know, normally when we look at a movie in a, in a theater or whatever, it looks three-dimensional, but it isn't. It only looks three-dimensional because we have binocular vision. If you shut one eye, it'll all of a sudden, the image will go shut. But the image is really only s- flat. But when I put on these three-dimensional glasses, it things were just happening out there. They were happening all around me, behind me, ahead of me. There was a whole new dimension to it. I think something like that is going to be happened when an earth is touched by the glory of God. There will be some multiple dimensions, whole new experiences that, as they say, will literally blow our mind. And by the way, there's huge practical significance to this. A lady in our congregation many years ago, her husband died suddenly. When I went to visit her, she was a bitter, angry woman. She was angry at God. And this is what she said She said, My husband had just retired. We had been planning all our life at this stage. To travel, to see this and to see that. All of that is taken away. I'll never be able to experience all of that with him. Well, she was wrong. She was right in a one way, but she was wrong because both she and her husband were followers of Jesus. And there's coming a day when she will see an earth that is so much more spectacular that all the things that were not done on her bucket list, she wouldn't even be thinking about them. That. There'll be something. this. So, this doctrine is of incredible practical significance right now for us. Imagine the practical significance for people who live with various kinds of physical challenges and mental challenges and things like that. What an incredible joy this is for that, for that anticipation. So, and secondly, there'll be new modes of locomotion, of movement. You remember when Jesus suddenly appeared through a closed door? Uh, Did he do magic? I don't think so. See, bear with me. You might need to stretch your mind a bit to catch this illustration. Imagine you're on a flat table, two dimensions, right? And you put a barrier right across the middle. Just draw a line. And then you put a string, because you're only dealing in two dimensions. You, You put a string, and then here's the challenge. Can you move the string from one side of the line to the other side of the line without taking it off the table? You can't do it. There's no way you can do it. But as soon as I allowed a third dimension, you could lift the string from here It would become immediately invisible here. You could plop it down here. It would appear here. And to a creature that only lived in two dimensions, it would seem like, oh, the string appeared through a closed door. There was no magic. There was an additional dimension attached to it. I think something like that is probably what happened. Jesus didn't just do magic and rearrange the atoms of the door, although he could have. I think he just walked out to an extra dimension that we don't know in three. We can't imagine that. We can imagine it from two because we live in two and three dimensions. But we can't go from three to four with our minds. But if there was an additional dimension to it, then he could just simply move, not very far, and move to the other side. Now, this this is where the significance of the ascension of Jesus comes. When Jesus ascended, do you remember how it is described? They, they, They saw him partly, fully, partly, and not at all which is exactly what would happen if you catch one end of this piece of string and start moving the string up. You'll see the part that is still on the ground and the part that's off the ground will be disappearing until slowly the part that's on the ground gets less and less and the part that's off the ground keeps disappearing and the string's finally gone. Exactly that kind of a picture would fit the ascension of Jesus. He's all there, he slowly starts moving up and we see part of him and he's all gone. So these are some little clues to the fact that there exist. And by the way, remember, the Jesus who rose wasn't spirit. It was a physical body that went somewhere. And as C.S. Lewis says so beautifully, a spirit can just vanish, a body has to go somewhere. So there there is a somewhere that is more than the third dimension into which a physical body of Jesus went. So I think there's a strong biblical foundation for thinking that this new dimension will be amazing. And by the way, this is so crucially important. Again, go back to a little illustration on 2 dimensions. There's strings, and you and I are two-dimensional creatures. Now, how far do you have to lift the string off the table before it disappears? Just an infinite. All you have to lift is a tiny infinitism, and it's gone. But it's really close to you, isn't it? Do You know, heaven isn't out there, folks. It's all around us. Heaven's that far away, if you will, <laughs> and even smaller than that. Because it's another dimension. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says, you have not come to Mount Sinai, which can be touched with your hands, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in the book of life, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's, do you know that? We are here in joyful assembly. There are the saints all around us. That's far away. The wedding is far away, folks. The bridegroom is quite close. <laughs> and I had a beautiful illustration of this in our church. There's a couple uh, who are, whose wedding I did many years ago, who happily married, had two children. They are part of a leadership mentoring group that I mentor my wife and I mentor regularly. But they both uh, were born in the, in, the, in the same church. They both attended the same Sunday school class. They were in the same nursery. So her husband, future husband, was always that far away from her. Only she just never knew the wedding was far away, but the husband was only that far away. That's kind of like that with us. Heaven's just that far away. Our bridegroom is just that far away. God is preparing the bride for us. And by the way, while we may not be aware of this all, earth is quite aware of this, and earth is longing for the day. What does it say in Romans chapter 8? Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So all the earthquakes, the natural disasters, the climatic horrors that we see and all of that stuff Volcanoes erupting. Earthquakes opening up. This is all creation and chaos. Has been cursed because of the sin of humanity. But that creation is groaning. It is waiting for its liberation one day. It's in the pains of childbirth. Now childbirth would be a horrible analogy. If what awaited earth was complete destruction. Right? That would be like a child waiting to be born. Only to die. But. But. If what awaits earth is a brand new creation, and that story is set in the context of a marriage of heaven and earth, and preceded by anguish, it's exactly like childbirth, it's a perfect analogy for it. So while you and I may not be longing as we ought to, creation is longing for it. So every time you hear about an earthquake, while it immediately precipitates some people into crisis and the others are called to help, and that's part of functioning in the image of God, let's also remember creation is groaning. Creation is groaning, but there's a day coming when there'll be a new earth and you and I will have new resurrected bodies living not in some heaven out there, but in a heaven and an earth that have been joined together. Let me now conclude with uh, the third element, which is the joy of heaven. What, what is it that makes up heaven's joy? Again, I want to use earth as a starting point to get some sense of what this joy is about. Uh, a book that you might want to read on this whole subject by Mark Buchanan is called Things Unseen. One of the best books I've read about hev- on, on the subject of heaven. He says, first and foremost you will see the, a perfect balance of nostalgia and novelty. We, we understand both. Nostalgia, oh, for the good old days. <laughs> I think sometimes of my teenage years living in the city of New Delhi, life was very simple. I loved to study, I loved the school, I loved my friends we played sports, There wasn't life was not very complicated. There weren't any big dreams and desires. There wasn't any big visions to do, no families to raise, no churches to, to, to shepherd, no sermons to prepare. Now, we studied, we enjoyed good food together, we played sports together, we hung around as friends together, went to bed every night, got up the next morning, did the same thing again. I look back upon those simple days. So we all know about nostalgia, going back home. <laughs> F.W. Borum is an Australian uh, essayist who has a book called, I say called Going Back to Dixie. He said the trouble is when we finally do go back to Dixie, we found that the Pixies have been chipping away at it and Dixie has changed. It's no longer what we imagined. That's true, I understand that. But still we all understand nostalgia, the good old days. For those of us who live in North America, I think the 1950s would be (coughs) a perfect place to live again. there's also a part of us that longs for something new. Adventure. New places. Different people want different experiences, but I talked to someone yesterday who went to take photographs in Iceland on his 40th birthday. Amazing results. Somebody else might want to do something else, but we want something new in there. And imagine now both of these coming together. Because on earth they fight with each other. Buchanan says this, we are born with two impulses. The first impulse is to go beyond. We seek novelty. We hunger for new beginning. We crave for discovery, conquest, adventure. Kids like to leave home, to live on their own, <laughs> to do something, they want not, they're tired of family. They want to do something new. But let them get into their 20s and their 30s. They want to start coming back home. <laughs> Where's dinner, mom? You know? Where's my favorite meal? But he said this atrophies into escapism because we don't get what we're looking for. We get to the novelty, it's not as good. This is all it was? Is that all there is? I need something else new. And so it becomes a restless escapism. Screwtape, in his book, who's a senior devil who tempts junior devil, uh, says, always keep them hungry for the next new thing. The second impulse is to go home. To recapture some unspoiled origin. Some unchanging sameness. We cherish the familiar. But then like going back to Dixie. We go back and the old has has changed. It's not exactly the same. So neither the desire for novelty. Nor the the, the satisfaction of nostalgia. While we experience both of them. Ever get satisfied. On earth. Not only do these two impulses war against one another but neither impulse is ever satisfied. Heaven is the one place where we are constantly discovering and yet where we are fully at home. Constantly discovering and yet fully at home. Where everything as it ought to be, and I love this sentence, the ah of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. Can I say that again? The ah of deep satisfaction, that's nostalgia, and the aha of delighted surprise meet perfectly. So that's the first element of the joy of heaven, I think, a perfect balance of nostalgia and novelty. A second element, and I'm, I'm indebted to Mark Buchanan for this, is a perfect blending of work and rest. And he asked us to do a little exercise in imagination. He said, imagine a time when you did good work. You were exhilarated. You had a euphoric sense of breakthrough and accomplishment. You felt an honest pride in a task well done. You were thankful and humble all at once. You experienced community. Others gave heart and soul to the work. You needed each other and told each other so, and you completed your project on time. That's work happening perfectly. He said, "Now imagine a time of perfect and good rest. You felt completely relaxed and restored. No worries troubled your' waking and you're sleeping. You had nothing you had to do, and you were free to choose what you wanted to do. The tenseness and tiredness in you vanished. You began to think clearly, play joyfully and freely. You entered deeply into fellowship and worship. You experienced shalom, the flourishing, recreative vitality of God's breath moving through you. Now, he said, imagine these two things joined seamlessly together and the whole thing never fading. The perfect blending of satisfying work and the perfect blending of rest at the same time. We can't imagine that here because we don't get it perfectly. But you know, there was one moment every week not every week, I should say, one moment most weeks, when for an instant, just for an instant, this future joy came into my present. And that was around one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon because I'd finished preaching three times, exhausting, but loved it. So it was work that deeply, deeply satisfied me. I stand at one place and have whoever wants to talk to me. They come, my congregation, I greet them. I've, the last person has greeted me And I'm about to enter my Sabbath rest. In that quintessential moment, there is the joy of work well done and there's the anticipation of the rest that's coming. But it's only for one moment. But in heaven, imagine that moment forever. The work that we do will be deeply, deeply satisfying and we'll do it in community. At the same time, there'll be perfect rest. That's the second joy of heaven. Thirdly, the joy of continued learning with no obstacles at all. We are asked here to teach and admonish one another with spiritual wisdom. I've been teaching what I have learned from somewhere else and hopefully you've been learning. And hopefully you will be teaching that to other people. You're going to be talking about the kids. The kids are going to come this evening and they have been learning some things. You see, but in heaven... We're not gonna be just a radiant community, we're gonna be an intelligent community as well. Where every single person has something to teach us. And none of the things that get in the way of learning here will be there. There won't be any proud and arrogant teachers. (laughs) Sometimes teachers mess it up here because they're proud. I remember in my master's degree program at MIT, at two fluid mechanics courses I took. One of them, both were taught by brilliant world leaders who had written defining books on their subject. One was an amazing teacher. The other one was a lousy teacher. He was so arrogant. He would put people down. Uh, nobody was uh, free to ask questions. Be, he, they'd be made to feel stupid. And so they never learned much. And so we sometimes get in the way of, of, of teach, the teacher's character gets in the way. The lack of humility gets in the way. Other time the problem is with the people. They have objections, they have arguments, sin gets in the way, they may be tired. uh, They think they know more than the teacher at times. They have emotional issues that make them want to show up before other people. There's all kinds of things that get in the way. But imagine an environment where teachers are completely humble, where their greatest joy is to impart what they know to others, and where learners freely say, oh, you know so much more than me. I just love to sit at your feet and learn from you. Can you imagine the learning that will go on in in an environment like that? So there's this joy of continued learning that will come. Imagine a time when you read a book or listened to a sermon or had a conversation with someone and you had a moment of insight and you said, wow, I get it. Isn't that awesome? I've had times like that in my study that have actually brought tears to my eyes. uh, At the beauty. Because after all, when we look at God's word and life through God's lenses, We don't just see the revelation of a holy God. We see the revelation of a brilliant mind as well. That's why when Jesus opened the scriptures and he instructed their minds and their hearts were inflamed as well. They saw truth that made them go wow. Imagine an eternity of learning like that. (laughs) We'll never ever get to the end. There will be continual joy in learning. And all of us will have incredible capacities. You never have to worry about, oh, he gets it and she gets it. And I'm not, just not too long ago, talking to one uh, older friend of mine who was kind of frustrated because some, he doesn't handle technology very well. And he found himself in a place where he could have used a smartphone, but he can't. He said, why didn't God make me like that? He was angry. I said, don't worry, there's coming a day <laughs> when, when you will learn and you will be as good as anybody else. There will be no limits at all to your capacity. And you will never get upset at someone who's better than you because your long greatest longing is to learn from that person. And that person will never get upset with you because their greatest joy is to teach you. Can you just imagine being in a community like that forever and ever? What a blessing to people who've never been able to go to school in this world. I think of, you know, a missionary friend of mine runs a school for orphans in India, and I periodically read testimonies of these girls that get to go to school. But only one of them gets to go to school. The other six children can't even go. I thought, what, what an amazing thing the heaven's going to be for these kids who've never been able to go to school, or for people who are illiterate and never been taught, or cannot learn for a variety of reasons. What an incredible joy awaits them. And then lastly, which is of the crowning glory. If the essence of hell was the absence of God, the total banishment from God, and the consequent de- degeneration of the soul, heaven we will see true soul-enlarging worship for the first time. <coughs> w- uh, worship here, you know, remember I said part of the reason for an infantile view of heaven is that we see endless worship services and we call that boring. But that's because worship services here have... S- there's so many things working against a good worship experience. I mean, think of it. When you go to church on a Sunday morning, maybe you had an argument with your wife on the way to school, or the car broke down, or the kids didn't behave. There was an accident in the breakfast room, and you had to clean. You're late, you can't find a parking spot. So you're already coming to church in a pretty lousy mood. Happens quite often, right? We're right. humans. And then the worship leader gets up and, oh, so and so's leading in worship today. How about them? I don't like this person. And maybe that worship leader came and hadn't really spent some time praying, hadn't really put together the songs, kind of scratched out a worship service. The team didn't practice on Thursday or the the drummer didn't show up for practice and now is ad-libbing and things aren't well. Maybe the sound isn't working that day well or the volume is too much, you know, or too little. Maybe there aren't too many hymns or not enough hymns or too many hymns. We can argue about that. Why are they using the organ still? We need the guitar. Or why are they using the guitar? We need the organ. And then the pastor gets up. Hey, did he really study this week? We heard that sermon two weeks ago. You know? (laughs) You know, all these things happen, right? There's so many things that are lined up against anything called a meaningful worship service. (laughs) So whenever it happens, it's just pure gift from God. but it does. Thank goodness. I've, I've tried to caricature it. But the fact is, something like that happened, but we see those moments, ecstasy. But listen. We get to heaven, there'll be no problem at all. Because we won't need somebody to say to us, it's time to worship now, folks. Isn't he holy? Isn't he beautiful? You'll be like Daniel. Your knees will buckle under and you'll fall to the ground. Holy, holy, holy. I heard a story that illustrated this. William Dyke was a young lad. He became blind at the age of 10. But when he was in his early 20s, He went to study at a graduate school, and there he fell in love with a woman who happened to be the daughter of a British admiral who gave consent for his daughter to marry this man with one condition. He said, there's a very new, risky surgical procedure. I want you to consent to go through that surgical procedure. If you give me your consent, I will give my consent for you to marry my daughter. And Dyke said, okay, but if that's what you want me to do to marry your daughter, I will do it, but one condition that the bandages will be taken off right when I'm at the altar with your daughter standing next to me. Not until then. So the the admiral agreed. So the wedding day came and Dyke's father led him all the way to the front and the bride was standing next to him and they opened the bandages. And the whole audience is eagerly waiting to see, would would he say something? Would he not say something? Is he able to see? Is he not able to see? He was absolutely quiet when the bandages came off. He turned to his bride and said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined you to be. That's what it's going to be like when we see Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined you to be. And worship will just flow from us like never before. So these are my best understandings of some of the joys of heaven. Very quickly, what do we do then? What's the so what? This is the so what therefore my dear brothers stand firm let nothing move you always give yourself fully to the work of the lord because you know that your labor in the lord is not in vain so work hard at every dimension of living because there's a continuity between heaven and earth our work will continue to survive the reason why i teach to the best of my ability is because i think i'm going to continue to teach in heaven the reason I study as hard as I can is because I think I'm going to continue to study. Those of you who are showing gifts of mercy and compassion and kindness and gifts of service, there'll be versions of that in heaven that'll be much more spectacular. There's a continuity, remember, between this life and that life, between this earth and that earth, between this body and that body, between this work and that work. That's why. Because this is the last verse after 57 verses on the resurrection. This is the so that at the end of the glorious resurrection. Therefore, Therefore, because Jesus is rising from that, because we have these beautiful bodies, because all things will be subject to Jesus, give yourself, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for these men and women who have been so patient in giving me these few extra moments each day so that we could adequately paint the whole story. And I just trust, Lord Jesus, that their hearts will be so captured in the months and the years to come that you will keep forging connection between their stories and and this grand story as I pray for myself in Jesus' name.